0: Dassa, bhagavato, arahato, sammasambhu dasa Namo
1: bhagavato,
0: arahato, Homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one
1: Chidoye
2: the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shifu uh, Shangren, Gawei Shishung, Baja Omito Fo. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Um, we're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and it is Shuang Shi Jie. This is the National Day of Taiwan. Not that we're partial to either side of the Taiwan Strait, but uh, this is that day for Taiwan, so happy double ten day, the tenth day of the tenth month. Let's begin tonight by uh, reciting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You'll find it on the front cover of your text. And when we do this, we're invoking their presence. I'm sorry. I started that incorrectly. I was... I'll explain why I made that mistake in a minute. Here we go. Start over from the top. Nam) <speaking in> Please turn to page sixty-eight and sixty-nine. This is too quiet. Okay, um, we're on a little more. good, that's better. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we're down at the second paragraph where it says "fods" in the Chinese. For people who are uh, joining us for the first time or are not familiar with the way we do it, we uh, like to honor the roots of our tradition. And the roots are definitely uh, originally in Sanskrit, but we got this, these sutras from the Chinese tradition. So we read first in Chinese. And uh, this text has been in Chinese for um, about 1800 years, so it's, got, it's kind of rooted in that, in that language, in these sounds. So even though we might not know Chinese or maybe not even be interested in, in listening or learning it, um, the fact that this language has carried the Buddha's wisdom all these years gives it a kind of a, a resonance. And when we, when we speak it or hear it, I think it, uh, it tends to put us into the context of something that has been in human awareness for nearly 2,000 years. Uh, then we do the English which is brand new, and this is a provisional translation. We're not uh, fixed on this as the final way to translate these words, but at least it gives us a sense of of, uh, something has been before. We're we're walking a path that has been walked successfully by men and women for 2,000 years. And then it was in Sanskrit before that, but uh, we got it in Chinese, so that's why we still honor that. And it's only been here um, in this form for 30 to 40 years, so uh, the, the English is brand new so that's why we do the Chinese so I'll give you a line and if you don't recognize the Chinese characters then you can look at the romanization ABC's FO is FO zi, ZI is zi, for, ZI like that and then we'll do the English following that. okay FO ZI PUSA PUSA
1: Subi
2: Wu and okay we 'll do just that much. disciples of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva using this compassionate mind of great renunciation, wishing to rescue and protect all living beings, further enlarges. the scope of his search search for all worldly and and world-transcending beneficial matters, matters. never being tired or weary. weary. Therefore, he then realizes realizes an an untiring, unwearied mind. Okay. This is our first... Our first passage tonight is talking about uh, a bodhisattva, an awakened being. It could be a male, it could be a female, it could be uh, Asian, it could be Western, it could be Southern, it could be Northern. It's not specific who. It's just a bodhisattva, an awakened being. It could be you, it could be me. And this bodhisattva, we're on what's called the first ground of ten grounds, first stage of ten stages. And this bodhisattva wants to help other people. That's the real clear thing about this. Um, that's a, definitely one way we can know what a bodhisattva is. A bodhisattva is what you call altruistic. Um, in, the, in the world, uh, he would be focused in non-profits... This Bodhisattva is not interested in any kind of selfish benefit. he would be in the um, be working in an NGO or some sort of a not for profit benefiting scheme that 's how the Bodhisattva would pass his or her days. So we found out last week that this Bodhisattva um, has in his or her heart this feeling of great compassion and great compassion it might it's kind of surprising for folks when they encounter the great compassion of a bodhisattva it's not always warm and fuzzy sometimes the great compassion of a bodhisattva is pretty bracing sometimes downright rude maybe Uh, but it's never selfish and two it's never harmful it's got that quality So, a compassionate bodhisattva sometimes, in order to wake somebody up, might tell them the truth when it's hard to hear. Uh, But if you look at the motive, the motive is always to help that person get past their pain, help that person to wake up too. Um, It's never carelessly rude, it's carefully true the way sometimes when you think of medicine there is uh, every chinese kid in the world kind of fears getting sick because they know what's coming if they're in a traditional household which is what bitter bitter medicine gag you choke you bitter ooh terrible but the the chinese say uh 就是 you they say really good medicine tastes bitter, but it's really good for curing your illness. So, sometimes the Bodhisattva gives bitter medicine, but when you swallow it, it goes, and you feel better right away. That's the kind of, uh, that's one piece of compassion. Other times, compassion is just as gentle as a breeze. It's like warm, tropical water. It just washes you clean, and you feel lighter and more connected and more grounded. So, real compassion is certainly not just everything's okay, groovy. Everything's kind of mushy and soft. Not at all. That's not the way the Bodhisattva practices compassion. Now, um, if you look at it, the Bodhisattva is always harder on himself, herself, than they are on others. That's always true. So for example, we found out last week that the bodhisattva, in order to benefit others and practice compassion, gives everything away. They are they're practicing renunciation. This bodhisattva doesn't hang on to stuff at all. Not sentimental regarding materials. The value of material goods for this bodhisattva is whether or not in giving it to somebody else, that person gets closer to truth, gets closer to themselves. And that's real different. That doesn't mean the bodhisattva is going to be poor, always, or walk around in, in you know, like a, a, a bed sheet or something. The bodhisattva sometimes could be as wealthy as your local CEO or your overpriced bank executive. But if you look at it, they... They don't hang on to stuff. Stuff goes through them. The only value that any object has is in its ability to help somebody else wake up when it's given. So bodhisattvas don't hang on to stuff, usually, if, you know, if we can make a generalization. So this bodhisattva last week we found out is practicing, because of compassion, is practicing generosity. They are able to let go able to renounce shu, sure. and then it gave us a list of the kind of things that the bodhisattva can let go of said this is called accomplishing great renunciation by a bodhisattva who stays on the first ground so how do we summarize that if you want to find out if somebody's a bodhisattva or not can they give stuff are they generous if they're stingy Chances are they're a future bodhisattva, but they're not able to they can't they won't have the bodhisattva's pin the bodhisattva's club pin on their lapel. They're stingy, they're still attached to me and mine. The bodhisattva's generous, able to give stuff away. Not carelessly. It's not again, whatever. It's skillfully giving. Giving skillfully, when needed, the right amount, at the right time. Giving is not simple, we discovered that Often, it's hard to actually give stuff sometimes. People have a lot of confusion when you give them things. Sometimes they have doubts, and no good deed goes unpunished is a cliche that is often sadly true. You know. So, okay, so the bodhisattva is able to give wisely, skillfully, so that people, in getting that thing, open up their hearts to what the bodhisattva could say to them in terms of dharma. So that's the, the purpose and the focus of giving. All right. Here we are tonight. It says, "Forth pusa the bodhisattva, using this compassionate mind of great renunciation, wei yu jiu in order to rescue and protect all living beings. gong shi chu wu further enlarges the scope of her search for all worldly and world-transcending beneficial matters, never being tired or weary. So what's our verb? Enlarges the scope of the search. What does that mean? Student. Intellectually curious. Engaged. Bodhisattva is always connected and paying attention. Why? Not just to scatter and to be you know, to know everything, but in order to benefit others. Anything that the Bodhisattva can learn that will help him, her, understand others and understand themselves so that they can make sense to other people, they will. They'll learn it. They'll pay attention, they'll notice, they'll get involved. Um, Because of that, they're always alert, they're always energized. Bodhisattvas, according to the sutra here, are not like always kind of half alert, half awake, drowsy, not really paying attention, kind of distracted, not at all. Their minds are neither tired nor weary. Okay, that's what we know about bodhisattvas. Because of that, there it says, we have the word xin twice. First line, pusa yi bei This great giving, xin, that's a picture, if you look, count in your text here, count over 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Character number 11, xin, that's a picture of a heart. That's the actual heart muscle with the ventricles and the auricles and the aorta and the, you know, that's actually it's a picture. That's one of the Chinese pictographs. About thirteen percent of Chinese language is still pictures, not more. Everybody thinks oh every character is a picture, well not really. It's about thirteen percent, but still the ones that are you can really see it. That's the, the uh, physiological heart. That's the the body's heart. Okay, now, how does that make sense in this sentence? It makes sense if you understand that for the Chinese, the heart was the place where thinking took place. Um, if you say, if the Chinese says, you know, I want you to think about it, though, go here. You know. I was thinking, me, Right? It's not here. You know, put on your thinking cap. Not not here. The brain is there's no picture of a brain for for thinking, for thought. So that's where thinking happens, and so this this sentence means the bodhisattva uses a ta heart, a heart of great giving. Only if you think hmm Big hearted. What it means here is attitude or um, orientation or motivation. Or um, there's a Jesuit meditator, Father Thomas Hand. He said the best way to translate sheen is psyche. Psyche, P S Y C H E. Psyche is a word that became popular with Western psychology, with Freud and Jung. So in the early part of the 20th century, everybody had to learn a new word, psyche. Greek, referring to kind of your mental, emotional makeup. Psyche includes more than just the mind that thinks things. The mind is computer. It's The the mind that includes attitude, thought, feeling, emotion, sensation. All of those things is kind of psyche. Another word that came into use then was gestalt, the whole whole makeup of thinking. So he uses, but psyche wouldn't work in the sentence, right? He uses the psyche of great giving, great compassionate giving. Compassionate psyche of great renunciation. That doesn't work either. So probably attitude. Mm. Motive would do well here. He uses this compassionate motive of great renunciation. In other words, the Bodhisattva gives things, renounces things for a reason. What is it? Kindness and compassion. The feeling of compassion moves the Bodhisattva in their shin to do Da Shi, great giving, to be generous. Okay. Um, That happens to me all the time. The motive rises. Um, You can't read a newspaper. You can't Go online and surf without. Unless you're a piece of wood, without being moved and touched. Um, I got an email yesterday. I think I read it today. In fact, that said, this was a Silicon Valley engineer sent the email. He said. I was reading newspapers from my hometown India and I read that there is some of the worst flooding in 30 to 40 years in my hometown province and I apologize I don't know it might have been uh, Uttar Pradesh I'm not sure where it was I didn't I just glanced over it. And he said, ordinarily, I would put the newspaper, I'd scan the newspaper and then go off and go to Starbucks or order from Starbucks my usual latte. And he said, today I couldn't get past it because I saw how much suffering is going on in my hometown because of these floods. There are two provinces in India that have been inundated when? This last week. Now, I was involved in a conference in Ukiah and I wasn't watching the news. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were two provinces in India that are underwater right now and people are drowning and dying and losing everything. The worst flooding in 30 and 40 years. I thought everybody was focused on Indonesia because of the second earthquake. Or the Philippines. I'm connected to United Religions Initiative. We have quite a few cooperation circles in the Philippines. And so I've been tuned in to the floods in the Philippines. People, apparently 70% of urban Philippines, Manila, is underwater. That's the disaster I was looking at. right? And that came right on the heels of way in southern Taiwan, which is where we have a monastery. 700 people died in Taiwan three weeks ago four weeks ago, because of the the typhoon that came through. And let's see, then there was a tsunami, and the tsunami hit American Samoa four weeks ago. And you go, yeah, it's like if you're paying attention, it's really hard not to be moved by great compassion to want to help. So that email today just added one more scene of horrible human suffering now one of the things that i'm not telling you all this to bum you out i'm just trying to put a a face on the bodhisattva who because of what feeling connected seeing the link seeing the hongti the same body with other living beings other human being how much more of the living being is moved to do something is not can't just say okay meanwhile chunk change the channel you know enough news let's get over to the basketball let's get over to the baseball finals right we're into the playoffs so nothing wrong with baseball playoffs it's just like you. it's so hard to once you see the connection to just Put armor around your heart and forget. But suppose you open your heart. What then? Fatigue, compassion fatigue. Right. It's just how many disasters can you stand? I heard the other day. You remember when the big earthquake hit Kashmir? And the uh, it was in the winter, and people in Kashmir were under the after the earthquake were all living out in under the snow until tents were sent. How many years was that? Two years ago? Two or, three. Two or three? Yeah. Well, I read the other day that many of those people are still living in tents. Right. It's that we hear about it when the media pays attention, but then when the media moves on and this insatiable appetite for new disasters changes focus... What about, a little closer to home, Katrina? Anybody follow up? How many of the refugees from Louisiana moved back to New Orleans? I don't, actually, I don't know. Um, I've read that some people say that uh, New Orleans is so violent now that it's really hard to stay there, that after Katrina, New Orleans became just terribly violent. So not very many folks actually tried to move back. Did everybody absorb all the American refugees from Louisiana? I don't know the answer, and I probably should. I should follow up. So at a certain point you go, I can't hold this anymore. Something's wrong, something's broken. So if we get that feeling, there's this thing called compassion fatigue. The Bodhisattva does not experience that. He or she does not have a tired, weary mind or says, can't respond anymore. I gave everything to the earthquake disaster in Kashmir. I'm, you know, that's my budget for charity. Got to take care of my family first. Bodhisattva is, how does he or she do that? Any ideas? When is enough enough? When is enough giving enough? And you have to say, uh uh, gotta close my heart to this next one. That's a tough one, right? First of all, who's asking? Mm, Well, I am. I'm asking myself. You are. You have to decide um, when can you walk past a homeless person who's saying "it's bad change, it's bad change," and when do you when do you move to give? What price do you pay when you you see somebody saying "it's bad change" and you go like that? What what price do you pay? Does your compassion shrivel? Does your heart take a beating when you have to harden your heart? Really good question. Anyway, these are important questions because here we are in a world where so many things are not coming together in harmony. So many things are breaking, it seems. It seems that things are breaking at a faster pace these days. So, how do we judge? How do we choose? What standard do we use to say, this is appropriate, this is not enough, that's too much. I've done my job, I've done my duty. Good question. Good question. Uh, I'm not going to try to answer it, but I will point us back to the sutra to see if we have a clue from the sutra. This is what the sutra is about. It's talking about how a bodhisattva enters the world with an open heart utterly wide open wide open past the point where there's any more heart to open because why is important the bodhisattva has been working on the me and mine, rubbing that away scraping it away polishing that away just chipping it away like taking a chisel and chipping paint you know so you can find out what's underneath the bodhisattva has been working on This until it's gone. And at that point, it's not nothing. At that point, it's everything. The Bodhisattva, we've seen this happen in this part of the chapter going step by step. The Bodhisattva is now connected. Connected. No more friends and enemies. No more family. Or strangers. The Bodhisattva doesn't go out and look at the bank account. Or just turn off your RSS feeds. Because you can't stand any more bad news. The Bodhisattva has been working on that me in there. So that as he or she looks out at the world. Using different eyes. Different perspective. There's no more me and mine. It's only us and we and ours at this point. I think that's the difference. How could a bodhisattva who's more tuned in, let's say Guanyin Bodhisattva, Guan Shi Yin, hearing the sounds of the world, Guanyin Bodhisattva's ears are really wide open, really, really wide open, right? Hearing absolutely everything. If we heard with Guanyin Bodhisattva's ears, we'd go, we couldn't stand it. Right? Imagine hearing the sounds of the people this weekend in Richmond and in East Oakland who are going to be shot. Right? We've been averaging how many deaths per week in San Francisco, Richmond, Oakland, East Palo Alto. It's part of life. Suppose we could hear that every single time. Could we stand? Of course not. This real, real suffering. Suff- sounds of pain. Guan Yin Bodhisattva hears all that times a million billion, right? How is it possible? How come a Bodhisattva doesn't get compassion fatigue? That's a really interesting question. I think it's because it's not that somehow they don't care. It's not that they're disconnected. It's not that they're not paying attention, right? They're totally connected. They're totally paying attention. But there's no place where me and you start and stop. The Bodhisattva has transformed that self in the center, that selfishness. And now uses a what? Da shi xin. Right there, we're on page 68. 68. Uses an attitude of great giving, which says, all this stuff is only there This stuff is only there to benefit others. I don't stick out my hand and grab my share as it passes through. Why? The Bodhisattva's attitude is, I got plenty. Enough. I got enough. I don't need more. This is good because it benefits you. That's a really, really courageous attitude unselfish right I think that's how it works anyway so it's a good question I mean I definitely at some point just can't stand to hear more bad news why well, I, I still have that me in there that's like calculating it's really deep that the sense of self and others and friend and neighbor near and far stranger and enemy all that stuff is really still alive so At some point, I'm filled up. Bodhisattva has transformed that thing. Okay? How are we doing? Wishing to rescue and protect all living beings further enlarges the scope of his search for all worldly and world-transcending beneficial matters. So what would a worldly, beneficial matter be? Um, Here's a worldly, beneficial matter. I have a friend in Taiwan who uh, actually, this is very interesting, had a dream. And in the dream, saw... His father giving food away. Now this person's father is a businessman. Spends all his time on the telephone. Mm. Is a Buddhist. Goes to to a monastery. But is not particularly, you wouldn't say, uh, tuned in to other suffering. Pretty much spends all day long buying and selling. Right? Purpose is make money. That's what life is about. On the telephone.
0: Ah, ah, booyah.
2: All day long. Loudly. Ah. You know. And the person dreamed of father giving food away. And woke up from the dream, went in to breakfast, told the dream at the breakfast table. And mom and dad were there and brother and sister-in-law were there. And somehow the timing was right and the dad just went, really? See, it hit him just right. And the guy said, yeah, You know what? Why don't we do it? You could use some more merit. Let's do it. Let's feed the homeless. What did the father say? (laughs) Taipei, you're homeless, ma? Are there homeless people in Taipei? He didn't know. Yes, there are homeless people in Taipei. He didn't know. So he says, okay, let's do it. How do we do it? And the sister-in-law said... I heard of somebody who bought a restaurant for two days and just invited everybody. We could do that. Why don't we just do it? You could use the merit, pointing to Dad. Dad, well, yeah, you know, I could. I haven't been very successful these days. I've been losing a lot of money. You know, still thinking in terms of profit. So, okay, let's do it. Let's go find a restaurant. Now, how will we do it? It's got to be vegetarian. Do we have mock meat or not? Yabi suro. No, that's okay, you know. Somebody said, "Oh, but if you only give vegetarian food to the homeless, you know what they'll do? They'll look at it and they'll throw it away. They want meat." No, 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 no. If they're hungry, they'll eat vegetarian food. So the dialogue at the dinner, you know, just going over all the details. Dad was into it, much to the person's surprise. The timing was just right. So they said, "Well, mm, let's see. How do we do it? Where are the homeless in Taipei?" So they, they checked it out. First of all, they went out and found a vegetarian restaurant that would be willing to do this. And they, the, uh, um, the owner of the restaurant said, uh, you know what? Uh, I live, I see the homeless every day. I don't want them in my restaurant. Let's make biandang. Let's make bento." Right. Let's make lunch boxes, box lunches, and I'll make them nice, and you can give them to the homeless. That's a better idea, isn't it? Yeah. Why? There might be homeless people who don't want to go in a restaurant. They, they're embarrassed, you know. Well, okay. So next question: Where do we go? How do we do it if we take if we have bian, bian They said, well, there's a monastery called Longshan si Longshan-si is where the homeless people are. Oh, okay. Is there a restaurant close to Longshan-si? Yes, there's a Buddhist monastery. There's lots of vegetarian restaurants. So they found a restaurant near Longshan-si. By this time, the whole family was talking about it. It's kind of exciting. They've never committed themselves publicly like this. So they got a budget. They figured out how much he wanted to give. They went to the restaurant and negotiated what would be in the box, you know, and a drink and... And uh, then they fixed the date and they said, wow, what if it rains? Bummer. Yeah. Well, let's take our chances. Hope it won't rain. So they fixed the time and they fixed the date and they got some of the aunties to help out in the family because they figured, let's do 220 lunches. Let's do 220 lunches. And it was the cost was something like. Um, Something like 500 MT per box or something like that. So it's about. How much? We'll buy.
1: That's
2: too much? Too expensive. So it's like 250 was it? Maybe $50 per. $50 per? Okay. I didn't get the price. So what would it be? It's like $3 or $4 per lunch. Okay, US. $3 or $4 per, per box. So. They fixed the date. Sure enough, it didn't rain. So, the brother couldn't get off work. So they had two fewer pairs of hands. The family showed up at Lung Here was a stack of 220 box lunches. Heavy. That's a lot of food. You know, big stack. And so, they took the subway. They got off the subway and they were walking towards the restaurant and they As soon as the lunches appeared, people started lining up. A hundred people lining up. And most of them are old. They all speak Taiwanese. Many of them, this guy shows up. Who is he? He goes... He's a mute. He can't speak. This is the boss of the homeless... In the park they go to the park in front of Longshan Si and this guy he's gesturing he has everybody lined up they're all waiting because this has happened before so the family's carrying the boxes over and they the people start to surge forward they all get in line and the uh, the guy says all right you have to be Everybody line up. There's one for everybody. You don't have to fight. There's plenty for everybody. Just line up. Lai, Slow down. You'll all get food. You know. So they do, and they pass it out. And the person saw, just like in the dream, exactly as in the dream, the father with his own hands putting food. In the hands of homeless people and what happened the 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 boss the the he's not the shuttle these are homeless people he's not a, like a mafia boss he the guy he snaps his fingers and points to the ground and three or four of them come and bow to the father and say "Great benefactor Shan Thank you so much, great benefactor. And she said that dad was almost in tears as he was moved in his heart to give this food to people. One hundred. Now there was two hundred. And he kept giving them. A large number of the homeless people are mute. Many of them are mute. Amazing. They did, had no idea who the homeless population was in Taiwan, in Taipei. So some people come up quietly and say, "Mm, "Could I possibly take two because my husband is sick at home and couldn't come?" You know, two, take two. You know, and when they 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 had just enough, and they had extra drinks, and there were like thirty people who came too late, not enough, but they could give them drinks, and they were fighting up. Slow down, take the drinks, and they said, "It's all gone." And everybody quietly disappeared and went back to eat their lunch. And everybody in the family was glowing, they said. The result of the giving on the family was a total transformation of people who were not connected. They weren't doing worldly beneficial matters. So the family went to eat. The family went to have lunch in the same restaurant. And around the table there was this joy. And the dad said, What? He said, next time, 500. <laughs> and the mother said, Oh, I'm going to take all the money I lose buying and selling stocks, which doesn't help anybody, and use it to feed the homeless. This was really good. And they looked at the son and said, You really transformed your dad. Good for you. Do you know what a good son you have? He said. And the son is going, Man that was a dream. you know the whole family totally was transformed by this dream you know of his father giving something, and it was it proved to be a turning point for the whole family. so uh, their questions are, who is this mute guy who showed up because he made all the difference? You know this experience could have been terrible. there could have been. Somebody fighting over it. There could have been a riot, you know, because if you don't stop it right away, people get excited, you know. It could have rained. Now, what did they do? They came out of the restaurant thinking, we're not done until we pick up all the garbage. We need, really need to go pick out all lunch boxes. And let's see how many ate a couple bites and threw it away because it's vegetarian. They went out in the park, they found all the lunch boxes empty, stacked up next to the trash can. These people had eaten every bite and then they themselves gathered up. So I heard this as I was hearing so I was like, "Uh, oh, Tsuji has been here. Obviously Tsuji has done this before because Tsuji trains people to do this kind of thing. So it's like, that's amazing. Can you imagine going to Telegraph Avenue and, like, passing out lunch boxes and, you know, vegetarian and coming back. It's interesting. I mean, maybe we could. Maybe we should. So, you think feeding the homeless. Well, I know there's shelters that do that, right? Well, uh, maybe Grace, you know, Glide. Glide does it. I know that. Yeah, but suppose you made 150 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and walked up and down telegraph you'd have that same experience. So this is an amazing story that happened two weeks ago. And uh, since then, there's been yet another typhoon and lots of rain. So you have to, all those conditions have to come together. But uh, one thing that has happened in this from this experience is the dad looks at his son with different eyes. Now it's like, you help me do something I couldn't have done by myself and he has now had that experience of actually from his hands putting something in somebody else's hands and watching what a difference it makes that's one meal you know think of those folks who live from meal to meal in the days weeks when they don't get any food like that so anyway that's uh, that's a story So that would be worldly beneficial matters. What would be world transcending beneficial matters? Without ever being tired or weary. The first thing that comes to my mind is um, speaking Dharma. Speaking Dharma is a world-transcending beneficial matter where you make a connection. You go from point A to point B to point C and somebody sees it as they've never seen it before. You show something that, as they say, has been hiding in plain sight. It's always been there, but the pieces were never put together. And when you point it out, somebody goes, oh, "I never made that connection before." Um, bodhisattvas are, and they say they're awakened. What are they awakened to? They're awakened to wisdom that they've always had, but it was covered. The thing that's different about wisdom from mere intelligence is often intelligence discriminates. The function of intelligence is to go chop, 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 chop. To take a phenomenon and break it down into pieces that you then digest. So let's say you were in marketing and you, you didn't know anything about marketing before. But somebody explains it. Oh, you have to do this, you do this, you do this. And you wait for the results. Then based on those results, you do this and this. Or you do that and that. And it's successful and you've, you've uh, brought in revenue. You've increased the accounts because you've, you've sold things well. Um, by dividing it up into little bits, you understand more. Wisdom does something different. Wisdom takes all those little pieces and integrates them into a whole. So you see the whole picture. That doesn't mean you don't get all the pieces or that you're unclear about the distinctions. But you can go from seed to fruit. Wisdom sees the whole tree. Intelligence, discriminating intelligence, sees every part of the tree. The roots, trunk, branches, branch tips, leaves, flowers, fruits, and the cycle. The invisible parts, the drip line, and the feeder roots, the parts under the ground. Wisdom sees the whole tree, looks at the tree and sees the part below the ground, as well as the fruit that's coming and the seeds. You ever look at an apple and see the seeds in it? Right? That's like, you have to chop it open, but then you go, whoa, look at that. Inside this apple are these little tiny seeds. Every single little seed contains what? An apple tree. And the apple tree can produce an orchard, given time. Because every apple has all those seeds and every seed has a tree and every tree has an apple with orchards full of seeds. So wisdom is able to see that whole picture, not just the still, but the cycle, the movie, the processes. So the bodhisattva is able to explain world transcending matters, the invisible parts. And people go, yeah, I see it like never before. Oh, that connection makes sense to me. Did I, I think I told people about Riley. Remember, Riley. Um, this is a story I'll never forget. Um, just showing the significance of bringing this into the West just putting it in Western language and looking at it, opening it up and trying to make sense of a Bodhisattva's life. Um, on the pilgrimage that I took years ago, um, actually arrived at City of 10,000 Buddhas uh, this month in 1979. So that was 30 years ago. This month. So 30 years ago this month. Um, Subtract a year from that and we were in Big Sur. Big Sur has a lighthouse. Point Sur. People know. Have you ever driven down there? There's a big lighthouse. um, On Point Sur. And that spit. The lighthouse is, you you drive, it's one of those, That's one of those curves. Big Sur is famous for having this incredible vistas. Some people call it the most beautiful landscape in, in America because it's where the mountains meet the ocean. And you come around a corner and you see these, this sinewy, dragon-like coastline. You see for miles and miles as it curves and curves. Point Sur is the farthest western tip. And there's this lighthouse out there. And it's windy, windy. It's windy out there. The wind blows hard, point sir. And personally, I'm not a great fan of the wind. I, I'm, my makeup is earth and water. I'm what you call kapha or pitta, pitta, fire, but my makeup is earth and water. Uh, my horoscope is mostly water, but there's a lot of earth in there too. I have a grand water trine in my horoscope. Anybody tracking that? Anybody care? Okay. So um, Marty, on the other hand, Hung Chao, he's all fire, and he loves the wind. Oh, the more it blows, the brighter he gets. Nice wind, you know. And I'm going, oh, you know, like wind blows waves in me. You know, I wish it would stop blowing. So here we are in Point Sur, and the road south of Point Sur is really narrow. You can't bow, take three steps and bow. You have to walk, count on your beads: one, two, three; one, two, three; one bead; one, two, three; one bead; one, two, three; one bead. You have to go like that and count up. Yep, we walked like maybe half a mile, which is uh, about 400 bows, and then find a spot off to the side and bow in place. Count, we would add 10% to make sure we didn't lose bows. And then bow in place, because bowing along the side of the road where it's just a guardrail and a drop-off, you can't bow. So we had to walk a long way, then find a spot and bow. Well, the only spot to bow was on the access road to the Point Stir Lighthouse. Exposed to the wind, the wind was blowing so hard that it's like the wind was coming down from the north. so We're bowing directly into the teeth of the wind, and you lean forward, and you can get a whole angle like this, and the wind is holding you up. You know, it's like you're kind of like a you know ski jump, you know, and, the, you know, and they're leaning on their skis like that. That's the way it feels when you're bowing into the wind until. You lose the angle and you're underneath the wind and it slams you down, right? You're leaning forward, leaning forward, then you're under the wind, boom, pushes you down. And then to stand up, you've got to go, one, two, whoosh, blows you back and you lean to one, two, three, you lean. So you're just this playing with the wind and it's like the wind is playing with you. And, and you look like a leaf. Let's see if we can blow you. You know, you don't weigh anything. Look. You know, you're just flopping like laundry on the line in a big wind, flap, flap, flap. Marty's enjoying it, you know, and I'm fighting the wind. Totally, totally exhausting. And it's a dirt access, so the dirt is shooting at your face like sandpaper. So that was not my favorite part of the part of the pilgrimage was bowing in the wind at Point Sur. And that windstorm lasted about seven days. And it was a wind week, we call it. And man, oh man. Um, so here we are in Point Sur. And it's a Sunday. And it's late. Which means most of the tourists have gone. The tourists come by from Friday night till Sunday afternoon. And then they're all, because Big Sur is 60 miles. One road, two lanes, one going north, one going south. and if you're, unless you're staying in Lucia or somewhere, um, you travel through and you time it so you're home by this time. You're not in the middle of Big Sur when the sun is going down. So here we were, in the access road, and there's a parking lot beside us. And from the north comes down this Cadillac. This Cadillac is rolling down Highway 1, takes this curve on two wheels, and just goes zooming by and then we hear screech and then it backs up cloud of dust like that and I'm this is happening behind me and I can't turn around and go who's that you know I have to pretend like I'm not paying attention right I'm supposed to be don't look don't look so I'm bowing against the wind sitting up and I can't hear anything because the wind is blowing the sound away you know, behind me. So then we realize that there's a third person there. And we finish bowing and uh, do our transference and turn around and here's this guy. Now, if I met him on the streets of San Francisco, I would probably be a little... Cautious. Why? He weighs about 230 pounds. Big man. He's got a scar running all the way down to his chin. And he's got those kind of muscles, bulging muscles. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, right? With flowers and multicolored. And big floppy sleeves that are flapping in the wind like flap 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 because the wind is blowing so so hard. And he's got a mustache across here, and he's got a big medallion around his neck, and he's got tattoos going up and down, and he's African American, big man. And what is he doing? He's looking at us like this, and his eyes are this big around. He's got his palms together, like this, looking at us. He says, excuse me, fellas. He says, now, I don't mean to interrupt. He said, and if you don't want me here, you say one word, and I'm gone. He said, but after I saw you, I couldn't just drive by. He said, I want to know, are you Buddhist? And Marty, who was talking, said, "Yeah, yeah. In fact, we are." And his chin starts to quiver. He's like this. He's obviously holding in some sort of emotion. He says, "Do you mind if I sit down?" "No, go right ahead." And he sits down. And the wind is kicking up the dust. And, and he says, "And he said, I would like to tell you my story." So we sit down, and I'm listening and paying close attention because I'm not talking. He said, well, "My name is Riley." He said, I've, mm, well, I might as well tell you. He said, uh, I spent 10 years in Leavenworth Prison. He said, for a crime I didn't commit. And he said, those are the 10 worst years of my life. But you could say they were the best years because I had one friend the whole time. I had one friend that told me the truth every single time I looked. And it was a book. And the book was called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Do you know that book? Marty says, do I know that book? He says, that was the book that got me started in Buddhism. He said, you know that book? And he gets, his voice goes up and he's really excited now. And you can see he's just holding on. He said, that book just saved my life. He said, I kept it under my pillow. I read it backwards and forwards. It's full of those stories, you know? Obviously, this is a very well educated man who had been jailed for something he didn't commit, he said. He said, I would read those stories and I would think, this is so wonderful that somebody knows the truth. But I never thought it would come out of Asia. He said, now wait a minute. He says, are you guys American? And Marty says, yeah, Wisconsin, Ohio. He says, I can't believe it. At this point, he's got tears coming down. He said, I thought this was long ago and far away. He said, now, I've been out for six months, and I was just heading down to L.A. figuring if there was anything like this, it must be in Los Angeles, because Los Angeles has everything, he said. (laughs) He said, you have to understand, he said, I've seen hippies, and I've seen yippies, And I've seen some stuff that nobody else has ever seen. But I never thought I was going to find you white Buddhists. He said, (laughs) white boys are Buddhists. He says, this Buddhism has come to the West. He said, that's too wonderful. He said, and it belongs to everybody. Marty at this point is really getting excited because this guy has obviously got the spirit. Marty says, Yeah. Yeah, he says, we're white, but, you know, the Buddha might have been black. (laughs) People think that the Buddha may have had very dark skin. You know, there's, that very well could be, it doesn't matter. And Riley says, that's right. He says, it belongs to everybody, and yet it belongs to nobody. He says, this is the truth. And ten years, that book saved my life. He said, you don't know what this means to me. You have no idea, he said. At this point, his eyes are just streaming tears. And he's got, his eyes are like round crystal platters. And he's just so excited. And Riley is just, he wants to dance, but he wants to sit still. And he wants to hug us, you know. But he doesn't know he probably shouldn't hug us, you know. And his shirt is flapping in the wind. And we're being bombarded by dust at point certs. You know, and so Riley said, Well, he says, you have given me hope. He said, The Buddha Dharma is here. These teachings are here to save the world. You have no idea what this means, he said. Got his Cadillac and drove away. So that's the story of Riley and Big Sur. So that's a, probably you could say, a world transcending beneficial matter is this book. What is it? Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Written by a Swiss man named Paul Reps, and he just collected stories. It's, it's a good collection, and I certainly read it. It's been reprinted a dozen times. You, you can find it: Zen flesh comma, Zen bones. And the stories come out of the Japanese tradition by and large, but they were he identifies Chinese stories and, and the Thai stories and so. So anyway, uh, that's the story of Riley. And um, I totally identified with his excitement, you know, because uh, when the the Buddha Dharma comes into its own, when you really need it, it's. I don't want to put it out of reach. When we're eating enough, when we have a warm place to sleep. When there's no typhoon and no earthquake and no tsunami, the Buddha Dharma seems appealing and somehow a little bit abstract, a little bit esoteric. As soon as the conditions change and we're sick, we're powerless, we're afflicted inside, There's something pushing on us that we can't push back at. When we're sad because of conditions just making it sad and you can't avoid it. When there's danger. When it's a real, real situation. The Buddha Dharma comes alive. When you call on it because your strength is gone, it's there. I'll just say that much and just put that out there so folks can reflect on it. But um, what I have called on the most is Guanyin Bodhisattva, I have to say. But um, these principles are true to get you through when you need it. One example, somebody passes away a loved one is taken from you. Mm. Why? The job is in China and they have to go because various reasons. Another one, immigration situations. Another one, breakup. A relationship goes south. Times like that, if you have the Dharma to explain conditioned arising if you have the ability to look at people and think you know I'm really deeply related to everybody we never go anywhere right we're just totally related and it's only my deluded view that makes me think I'm broken from that person how many people have a grandparent who is alive in your heart? Right? How long have their bodies been gone? Years, right? But in your heart, they're totally there. They're alive. Right? Where do they go? That's one way to look at a breakup of relationships. The Buddha Dharma talks about great compassion. What is great compassion? Tong ti, da be, same body, great compassion. It says, look at the warm parts, fire. Look at the moist parts, water. Look at the space surrounding every living being who's ever been on the planet. Same air, right? In your lungs, in the atmosphere. What about the solid parts? Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. Right? We do go back and then come back out of mom's body. right? Mom's body came out of mom's body. Mom, et cetera, et cetera. Back, back, back. When you look at it that way, earth, air, fire, and water, show me the difference between that person and me or that fish and that bird. Can't find it. None. right? There is a difference. What is it? What's inside? So what's inside? We're on the path. With that question, we're starting to cultivate. We're asking the question, who am I? Because that's the one we're in touch with. And then you think, well, who's my mom? Compared to me, right? You think, mm, who's my enemy? How come I can do that? How come I look at this furry creature and that's Fluffy? Or Fido. And I look at that furry creature, and that's lunch. What's really the difference? Mm, we're on the path. We're asking the right questions. The Buddha's answer is no difference. Fundamentally, there's one awakened nature inside the earth, air, fire, and water that we all share. That's square one. Is we actually share something inside that is utterly the same. As soon as the mind works, this one calls it God. This one calls it Allah. This one calls it Yahweh. Spells it four letters. This one calls it Buddha nature. A scientist or a Western-trained secular humanist calls it hmm, self or the big self. Hindus call it Brahman. Right? Go below all those names and you have what the Buddha called the Buddha nature, which is just like space. Can't grab it. Can't name it. Yet it functions identically. So, okay, well, where's the difference? So I'm just saying, this is a way to give my mind, using the Dharma, some way to look at what happens when Relationships break. Someone dies. Someone doesn't love me anymore. Someone has to move. Someone is taken away through war, through disaster, through Alzheimer's. How painful to have the body still there, but the mind is somewhere in the ozone. That's a reality that many, many of us are going to be facing as our elders age right if we can use the dharma my point is to say the dharma comes alive when we need it right they say the dharma arises from difficulty when things are pretty good this is you could say fascinating kind of satisfying to my intellectual curiosity kind of hits me right in the heart when we need it the buddha dharma comes alive. So, just to point that out, Riley got that, right? The Bodhisattva is never tired of cultivating, never tired of engaging and looking and listening because, why? People come to the Bodhisattva to ask for help fixing their pain all the time. So the bodhisattva is always clear of the amount of khu, the amount of suffering in the world. And he or she is ready to pass stuff on. Here you go. Here's what you need. You need something worldly, you need something world transcending. How about a bindang? Mm. How about zen flesh zen bones? You know? How about a kind word? How about silently going, mmm, mm mm, mmm, mm, mm, mm. yeah, oh, Mm -hmm. Oh, no, really? They said, what? Oh, hmm. Right? Skillful listening. Just witnessing somebody else's pain. What incredible kind of way the giving of kindness that can be. Right? The giving of courage. Simply witnessing other people's misery is profound giving. Right? Hmm. I've been uh, all I've been on all sides of giving to homeless people. There was a period when uh, I lived in Burlingame and I went to school at the GTU uh, every day of the week. I'd go to Japanese class at Cal and then go to class at GTU. And I started in Burlingame, and it took an hour and forty minutes to get all the way from Burlingame, the Burlingame Plaza Shopping Center, where I lived at ITI over to GTU. An hour and 40 minutes over, hour and 40 minutes back. And I walked from BART up the hill every single day. And right there, there's lots of bad change, bad change. And it's the same folks, the same people who were hurting. right? And, of course, the argument goes, oh, don't give them money, they'll spend it on drugs. Don't give it money, they'll drink it. You know, you're hurting them. Well, yeah, okay, so what do you give? Well, at that time, there was a bakery at the Burlingame Plaza Shopping Center that would give us their day-old and second-day bread. And they, it was a Chinese family, and they were interested in making merit, so they would use their extra bread. We'd come out in the morning and find this big, mm, what is it, garbage-can-sized black plastic garbage bag full of loaves of bread. I mean, 15 pounds of leftover bread. This is enough bread to feed everybody here and give you some to take home. I mean, a lot of bread. And there were three monks in the building, right? So we went through the whole thing of you've got to eat a little more because you're wasting it, you know. Yeah, but if I eat a loaf of bread, there's no room left for anything else, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was really good bread. I mean, it was bakery bread, but it was just like, ah, too much, too much, too much, too much. So I thought, aha, spare change. <laughs> mm. So I packed my book bag, I packed my lunch bag, and I packed my black plastic garbage bag full of bread. And man, on BART, people would go, Buddhist bakery? (laughs) What are you doing? You know, and I kind of (coughs) go, should I give it? No, I'd probably insult him if I handed him a loaf of bread. (laughs) Big loaf of bread, you know. So I get out of the bar station. It's bad change. No, but I got some bread. Thanks. Or sometimes, (laughs) chuck it. Why? They really do want money for drugs. Or as they go... Thank you so much, you know. But I became known as the bread monk. (laughs) On Shattuck Avenue, I had a following, you know. And they would wait, you know. And they'd say, hey man, could I have two? How about three? And sometimes I would get to class and I still had half a bag full of bread, you know. So I would... Just put it out on Sprawl Plaza or carry it back and get the afternoon bunch, you know. But that was really fun. And then guess what? The bakery closed. So that was the end of that. And then there was a period where you gave Scrip. Remember Scrip? Scrip is the, mort- the merchants of Berkeley got together and said, give us 15 bucks and we'll give you a, a bunch of tickets. The tickets are redeemable for staples, not alcohol, not drugs. So the homeless, it's bad change. You go, bless you. Give them a credit for $10 of groceries. They could take it to the grocery store and change the script because it was already money. That was a good thing to do. So you could give without fear that it was going to be used wrong. So that was for a while, but then... Uh, it got complicated you had to buy it at certain hours and stuff like that so that that didn't last then I got to where because I'm obviously a religious type it got to where I would say pay a change mm, actually I don't carry money but I'd like to give you a blessing could I do that? And about half the time, faces would light up. They would say, Oh, yeah, do it. Or, thank you. You know, I would say, bless you. I hope things turn out. I hope things go well. May you be peaceful and happy. And people would go, Sometimes their faces would just melt. Other times, there'd be this sour, you know. Many homeless folks compound it with mental illness. That's that's a sad truth. But my experience was that lots and lots and lots of homeless people lack one thing more than anything else, which is Human contact. It's really undignified to have to ask. Nobody likes, give me, right? And most people turn away or spit or just, you know, which makes it worse. Not only are you in need, but people insult your dignity. To have somebody look someone in the face, address them as a human being and say, no, I don't have stuff, but I'll certainly give you my heart, you know, give you my attention, focus on you and acknowledge your humanity. That's valuable. doesn't buy drugs or alcohol or bread, but it touches something, feeds something else. So that's what I do a lot. And about half the time, that's, that works. Um, so, Anyway, um, to be able to stay connected through all the incredible requests for compassion. And man, it seems like the disasters are coming faster, I have to say. Um, To be able to stay connected and keep your mind untired and unweary, that's a real bodhisattva. To not have a limit to where you say, oh, I just can't give anymore, I'm tired. Right? That's not easy. And I think the bodhisattva does it because the self is gone. They don't see a difference. They really live in Tong Ti, Dabe, same body, great compassion. That's why bodhisattvas are bodhisattvas and we're still here in the world of duality. So the Bodhisattva realizes an untiring, unwearied mind. Okay, next week we're going to get to that last paragraph. Once the Bodhisattva gets the untired, untiring, unwearied mind, something changes, something else happens. So we'll we'll get to that point next week. I'm going Pick up my guitar and we'll transfer them. Out. so please send a wish out from your Untired, unwearying mind. To whoever you know, could use some of that spiritual food. The transference is on that yellow sheet it's in your sutra. New calendars, 2010. There's a box on the back on the pew. People are welcome to pick one up. Buddhist calendar. Pretty illustrations. Verses, Chinese and English. And all the Buddhist holidays. As well as Islamic, Jewish, Christian holidays. Back has addresses of all our various monasteries. So... This is nice. it's now October, but this is ready for 2010. If people would like to make an offering in exchange, you can don't feel obliged. We'd be happy to, to give you one for sure. Um, if you want to, if you have to take like a bunch, let me know because we have more. We have in the box, I think we have enough for everybody. Um, and if there's, if there's too many, uh, if there's if there's not enough, that is, we'll open the other box. Maybe I'll just open the other box anyway to make sure everybody gets one. So that's this year's calendar. Um, things that are coming up. Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday, at 7:30, special event. Uh, there's going to be a dialogue here between Dr. A T. Aryaratni, Dr. Ari, Dr. A.T. Aryaratni is the founder of the Sarvodaya movement in Sri Lanka. This is, uh, now he would be unhappy if I said it, but this is somebody who walks the bodhisattva path. Is he a bodhisattva? He won't tell you if he is. He he certainly won't, but he's as close as you get. Um, He calls himself nobody special at all. and He's just a little guy, you know, totally undistinguished looking, but he's the real deal. He has had uh attempts on his life three or four times, and one of the he, he tells this amazing story because he is fearless, this man is fearless, and he champions the poor. And he Defends the powerless in Sri Lanka and Sri Lanka has had no shortage of violence and because he goes out into the world and talks about his convictions so people threaten the killing a lot and one time uh, a uh, opposition political person who was known to be to have enforcers behind him threatened his life so Arya what did he do? walked into the guy's office and said, Here I am, shoot me, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. But you can't just go on threatening. You gotta either do it or be quiet. And the guy was just he couldn't couldn't shoot him. He had to talk to him, you know. And they wound up allying. His movement gained ten thousand followers that day because he the guy Realize this is a real human being. And the people who threaten him are just afraid. They're scared that they might lose benefits or they might lose power. And Arya Ratni has such incredible charisma and heart. He melts people. He takes away their fear just by saying, Come on, it really hurts. It hurts everybody. We've got to all pull together. It'll hurt less. You know, he's that kind of guy. So the topic is, what would Buddha buy? What would Gandhi globalize? right he's going to be joined by michael nagler professor michael we know michael nagler he founded the peace and conflict studies department at cal he's as a cal professor he started the only meditation course that was in the actual cal catalog and he fought for that peacefully mind you but he fought with the administration. They didn't want to have a course on meditation. It just sounded too unscientific. <laughs> but uh, Michael Nagler taught that course for years. He himself is a disciple of um, the of the Hindu teacher, whose name just escaped me, Sri Eswaran. Eswaran, Sri Eswaran, who... Um, taught in the Bay Area for years, passed away a wonderful, true Hindu, teaching the, the, the mainstream spirituality of Hinduism. Nagler still does it. He meditates hours every day. Uh, Walter Link, who chairs the Global Academy and the Global Leadership Network, will be the third person. 7.30 p.m. this coming Tuesday right here in the Buddha Hall. Uh, so please do check that out. Um, says... We are honored to host Dr. Ari this coming Tuesday. He will join social-spiritual entrepreneur Walter Link and Gandhian scholar Michael Nagler for an evening of dialogue on economics, spirituality, and transformative social action. So how to use spirituality to get involved in the world. There will be a lot of people here. I won't be here. I'm going to be at City of 10,000 Buddhas. I would really appreciate if some volunteers... Of our regular group could um, come welcome everybody, host everybody, make sure there's plenty of towels in the bathroom, that kind of thing. That's Tuesday night. that would be very much appreciated. So do check that out. Um, what else? Okay. Um, this coming weekend I'm going to be in LA for the VegSource conference this is the annual vegetarian conference the VegSource.com Healthy Lifestyle Expo and John Robbins is going to be there Diet for New America John Robbins Dr. McDougall will be there uh, this is the guy who um, who was the He's gone. Who was the guy who taught the meat diet? Atkins, Atkins, right? Atkins Diet Revolution, which was not healthy. And McDougall called him on it and forced him to debate it in public to, to bring out his claims to see whether they held water. And Dr. McDougall kindly took the guy apart in a gentle way, of course. Uh, But poor Atkins just couldn't stand once he got past the hype to have a real doctor who deals with sick people all day long, many of whom ate Dr. Atkins' diet of meat, 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 meat. Atkins said, you can lose weight by eating lots of meat. Mm. So McDougal picks up the pieces after people eat the Atkins diet. Atkins diet, And they refused to release his autopsy. Nobody would tell what he died of. His corporation refused to let that news out. Clearly, he died of his diet. So anyway, Atkins books, can you find them in the diet counters, health food stores now? Gone, right? Atkins was, I'm not sure. Does anybody know? Still there? Still there? Okay. So, anyway, it's not recommended. <laughs> I guess you see, I'm a little biased. I, I should own my prejudice. Right? Um, I know folks who tried the Atkins diet and left it far behind. First of all, you, it plugs you up. One of the realities of the Atkins diet is constipation. So, tough. Anyway, so Dr. McDougall will be there and uh, Joel Furman will be there. Are you going this year soon? I think so. Maybe. That'd be neat. All right. So, uh, VegSource.com. Marty will be here to lecture. Marty Verhoeven will be here to tell the story of the Bodhisattvas on uh, the first ground. Um, Teance, tea night, next, not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, the 20th, will be at Tians on the 20th. Then, um, back here on the 24th, and then on the 25th, I'm off to China, going to Shan, Cloud-dwelling Mountain, Zhenru Si, Zhenru Monastery, to take part in a conference talking about Master Shuyun, Master Empty Cloud, who is our grand teacher, the teacher of Master Xuanhua, and I'm going to talk about their relationship. He's the one who... Uh, that's Master Shuyan's Enlightenment. The cup hit the floor with a ringing sound that echoed in the air. Empty space broke to bits. My mad mind stopped right there. He's the one. So we'll be talking about that. Um, so that's kind of what's, what's coming up. For the rest of October um, I'll be spending my birthday in Shanghai so I won't Locke can't sing another round of what is it uh, Too bad we have another song, another song? <laughs> you can sing it the week before how does it go uh, let's see Truth the Dharma Scholar chased his PhD. Da 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 da. Remember that one? Truth the Dharma Scholar? That was a riff on Puff the Magic Dragon. I think everybody's forgotten it blessedly. So Um What was the data at B thirty years it was no, it was the end of October, 1979. Pardon? Um, I have to look it up. No, but it's there. It's in the, uh, the book called uh, News from True Cultivators. All right. Um, I would like to point people to my blog, Dharma Forest. Type Dharma Forest into Google or your favorite search engine. And if you want the address, it's paramita.typepad.com. But go to Dharma Forest. Just type that into Google. I've been posting more. You're going to find um, stories of what happened last week. I'm still posting them. Only begun. Last week, I was at City of 10,000 Buddhas for the Western Monastic Sangha Gathering. Forty monks and nuns gathered at CTTB for four and a half days of conversation very rewarding this time sometimes it's just the, the, the brother and sisterhood that makes the difference that's so nice this time it was actually the topic the, um, the topic was the environment monks and the environment monks and nuns simplicity sufficiency and engagement. Does anybody know about eco-anxiety? Are you aware of eco-anxiety? You laugh. There are registered psychotherapists who do nothing but eco-anxiety. What does that mean? It means that there are people who are so tuned in to the destruction of the planet that they exhibit neurotic, paranoid, psychotic symptoms, schizophrenic symptoms. There are psychotherapists who are focused entirely on getting people past their fear of doomsday. I read this afternoon that there are patches of ocean off the Pacific coast, as big as New Jersey, that's neither here nor there, that is New Jersey, that are officially dead. Nothing lives in those pieces of ocean. And they're growing, growing like crazy. Um... Conference talked about that kind of stuff. Eco anxiety. That well, was one talk. Another was another talk was on. Bhikshuni Hung Yin talked about our schools, a city of ten thousand Buddhas, and the kind of engagement with the earth that the boys and girls are learning. Very wonderful um, connection with the earth and uh, Native American. Approaches to the environment. She reported on that. Which brings me to one more topic, which is uh, I spoke today with Joanne Shenandoah. Joanne Shenandoah, as you recall, is a Native American a singer, composer performer, humanist uh, and PhD from Syracuse University who is an Iroquois she's the granddaughter of Chief Shenandoah and her mother is the clan mother the wolf clan of the Iroquois in um, New York State she will be coming to sing here again Twins are here. You remember Joanne Shenandoah? I have a picture of her with Christine and Amanda. And she has performed here twice. And her her husband this year, Doug George, will be coming to share the stage um, to talk about uh, an, a Native American vision to save the planet. That they hope it's not too late. Doug and Joanne are going to the Parliament of World's Religions in Melbourne to meet with indigenous people worldwide hosted by Aborigines of Australia who are really coming forward for the Parliament. So they'll be talking about what's happening. And this is native wisdom at a time when we need it. So Joanne uh, said... All right, she said, I would be happy to sing at the Berkeley Monastery on one condition. And what's the condition? That you share the bill with me, she said. Meaning she wants me to sing, too. And I went, oh, whoop, uh, whoop. Well, I, that never occurred to me. Um, so, I don't know. We'll see. But it would be nice to it'd be quite an honor. So, anyhow, that will probably, if all things go well, Currently, it looks like that will happen on the 15th of November. That weekend, 15th of November. 13th of November she'll be up at City of 10,000 Buddhas. It will be a Friday. 15th of November is a Sunday. So it would be a Sunday late afternoon, early evening concert here. So put that on the calendar. And I'm going to ask some volunteers to kind of get the ball rolling while I'm in China. Um, Because I'll be back on the 9th, just the week before Okay, um, Dharma Forest includes today um, an article by Michael Moore. I know Michael Moore is a controversial person, he's a filmmaker, and some people think he's Satan incarnate, and other people think he's pretty funny and he talks true. Michael Moore wrote an article yesterday for Alternate. Congratulating President Obama on his Nobel Peace Prize and then he says now please earn it.
1: <laughs>
2: now that could be a barb and I read it and it's not. Michael Moore really, really admires President Obama and supports him 100%. Um, He says, how outstanding that you've been recognized as a man of peace. Your swift early pronouncements that you'll close Guantanamo, you'll bring the troops home from Iraq. You want a nuclear weapon-free world. You admitted to the Iranians that we overthrew their democratically elected president in 1953. You made the great speech to the Islamic world in Cairo You've eliminated that useless term, the war on terror. you put an end to torture. These have all made us and the rest of the world feel a bit more safe considering the disaster of the past eight years. In eight months, you've done an about-face and taken this country to a much more sane direction. But, and then he he says, uh, you are now truly at a crossroads. You can listen to the generals and expand the war only to result in a far too predictable defeat. Or you can declare Bush's wars over and bring all the troops home now. That's what a true man of peace would do. So he's encouraging him, and he says, There's nothing wrong with you doing what the last guy failed to do capture the man or men responsible for the mass murder of 3,000 people at 9 11 capital letters, but you cannot do that with tanks and troops. You're pursuing a criminal, not an army. You don't use a stick of dynamite to get rid of a mouse, he said. Now, he says the Taliban is another matter, etc., etc. I don't feel comfortable talking politics. I do feel comfortable talking peace from this seat. So that's why I'm sharing this. He says... He makes Michael Moore makes the point that you have to, why he feels the president has to take us out of Afghanistan. He says, you have to end our involvement in Afghanistan now. If you don't, you'll have no choice but to return the prize to Oslo. Give it back, he says. So that's why he says, now you have to earn it. Then his PS to the letter is really worth reading. This is wonderful. This is why I kind of I admire Michael Moore's humor. Never mind that he comes from Michigan, where I'm connected, but Michael Moore is kind of our hometown guy, fat guy in a baseball cap. P.S. Your opposition has spent the morning attacking you. Who's the opposition? Those crazy people? Your opposition has spent the morning attacking you for bringing such goodwill to this country. Why do they hate America so much? Right? Why are people happy that Chicago lost the Olympics? What? I got the feeling that if you found the cure for cancer this afternoon, they would be denouncing you for destroying free enterprise because cancer centers would have to close. (laughs) Why do they hate America so much? There are those who say you've done nothing yet to deserve this award. As far as I'm concerned, the very fact that you've offered to walk into the minefield of hate and try to undo the irreparable damage the last president did is not only appreciated by me and millions of others, it's also an act of true bravery. Obama... Offered to walk into that minefield and try to undo what was done by somebody else. That's okay. I like that. Last line. That's why you got the prize. The whole world is depending on the U.S. and on you to literally save the planet. So let's not let them down. He said. So that's Michael Moore's. If you want to read that again, go to my blog, Dharma Forest. You'll find it. Good for him. That's true talk. Okay. Can we finish by chanting the Buddha's name to kind of get that political flavor out of our ears? And and, ah. bodhisattva seeks worldly and world-transcending methods, right? What are you gonna do? Sing it here. Nah. Let's see. Here we go. Nah, 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 it's too low.
0: Too low. Okay.
2: Sounds pretty American, doesn't it? All right. So, uh, see you in a couple of weeks, and do come next week to have Marty explain about the Bodhisattva. And um, remember, the Buddha Dharma arises from difficulty. When times get tough, that might be the very time that your faith grows by a mile. don't forget your calendars and Dr Arya Rotke on Tuesday